Well, welcome to Emmaus Church community this morning. My name is Nathan. So glad you're here. Welcome back from summer break. There are a few who are still out there. Most are back. Um, I'm so grateful. Thank you guys for leading in worship. I'm so thankful for an opportunity to be led into worship. Um, I need that. I need that. I need the encouragement, the call, the sing these words now, the, uh, the challenge to, to lift up my heart to the Lord. Um, so thank you for that. If you're on the aisle and there's a basket under your seat, would you hand it down the aisle and, or the row? Um, if you'd like to grab a card and fill out a, like a prayer request or uh, give us your contact information, we send out a weekly 60-second newsletter through email. And we'd love to let you know what's going on here at the church. We'll collect those later when we receive uh, the offering. And then if you'd like a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers here will hand one to you. Thanks, guys, for doing that. We'll be in the Psalms today. So I encourage you to grab a Bible. And if you don't have one of your own, please take this home with you. All right. Good. Well, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, we're a 10-year-old church trying to make a difference in this town and beyond. And uh, some of you have been with us a long time, and some of you, this is your very first time here. So my hope is that you feel a real genuine sense of authenticity, that you um, feel welcome to struggle here and learn here and explore here, to ask questions here, to go at your own speed. We will challenge you with the Word of God because it's captivated our hearts, and we want to preach it as well as we can, and we want to worship with our whole bodies, hearts, minds, and souls. And so uh, I hope this is a comforting, encouraging, and challenging morning for you, frankly. All right? Uh, great. Well, I hope you got some notes and a Bible. We're going to jump right in. This week I had breakfast with a friend of mine who's a pastor. And uh, this is a brother who loves Jesus. This is a brother who spent a lot of his life training and going to school and preparing for vocational ministry. This is a brother who has a great track record of serving the church, of uh, engaging in um, culture in a way that actually makes a difference. I mean, he's just actually, we've become friends because of the real deep sense of respect that I have for him and what he's done. Uh, he's also a brother who's struggling, really struggling, like struggling to the degree that he left the church that he was pastoring and struggling to the degree that he's no longer in a position of spiritual authority or leadership not because he failed, not because of any immorality, but because he's struggling. He is simply struggling to reconcile what he believes in his heart with what he sees with his eyes. He's battling it, and the struggle is real. Now, what's remarkable to me is not his story. It's actually kind of a common story. Lots of people are struggling. Lots of people in spiritual leadership are struggling. Lots of people have real doubts. Lots of people are trying to navigate life in the wake of just profound disappointment. So what's remarkable to me is not that this brother is struggling, not that a man who loves Jesus and serves the church is having a hard time or is wrestling between the, in this tension between the way life should be and the way life seems to be. What's remarkable is how rarely the church is or how rarely the church is perceived to be a place where you can struggle. In other words, it's, it's remarkable how rare it is to find a community of Christians who are okay with struggle. And on the other hand, it's actually remarkable to find Christians who are willing to struggle in community, right? So it goes both ways. And why is that remarkable? Why is this surprising? It's surprising because 
Christians read the Bible. And the Bible is the story of God revealing himself to people. And in that story, people always struggle. Always. Just consistently, all through scripture, people are struggling. They're always struggling. And the Bible is remarkably honest about that. The biggest heroes in scripture have these deep moments of struggle or seasons of struggle. And the Bible doesn't doesn't try to edit those out. The writers of the Bible are very honest about that. There are stories of triumph. There are stories of just glorious success. There's also stories of depression, and there's stories of defeat. There's songs in the Bible that go, God, you are so amazing. And there are songs in the Bible that say, God, where have you gone? Why have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten to fulfill your promises to me? Recently, someone from another state told me that they listen to our teachings online because we're a church that's willing to talk about struggle and suffering. <laughs> and uh, that surprised me because we're not trying to talk about suffering. Um, we are trying to be honest. We are trying to be honest. We are trying to engage in a spirituality that makes a difference in real life. And so apparently, uh, re referring to life in its honesty and authentic reality is, is going to include mentioning times of struggle, is going to include hard times. Perhaps that translates into uh, a church that talks about suffering a lot. Anyway, as we wrap up the summer, we're spending a few weeks in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms was written, it's in the Old Testament. It's written before Jesus was born. It was the prayer book of the people of God. The book of Psalms is the book of prayers that Jesus would have grown up praying. And we're calling this series Shadow Side. Uh, we're listening to the very honest and vulnerable words of those who have navigated through the shadow side of the faith. So here's the basic idea that we're considering together. I am convinced that thinking through your troubles is helpful. But I'm even more convinced that there are many questions that can't be answered. And there are all kinds of situations that don't make sense. And so we need a way to respond that is beyond the rational. In other words, we need a way to interact with and engage with our struggles that is beyond just trying to figure it out. We need to, we need to find ourselves. When we find ourselves on the shadow side of faith, I think we need heart language. We need poems and we need songs and we need prayers to guide us through those shadows. In other words, there are part of our lives that tr are truly difficult and they just don't make sense. And so to demand a rational explanation for this adversity that you're facing makes about as much sense as saying every problem that my car might have will be fixed with a half-inch crescent wrench. It, it doesn't make it, that's ridiculous. It's like saying every shot, every golf shot is makeable with a driver. Of course it's not. We need more than one tool. We need more than one method or strategy for dealing with the variety of suffering and pain that often is part of our, our lives. Yes, we need to use our heads, but more than that, I think we need to use our hearts. So let's uh, take a look at an example of this in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm number 27. It's written by um, David. And we'll read it together with essentially this idea that maybe the way to navigate through complex, modern troubles is with the ancient prayers and the songs of the Bible. Psalm 27. I plan to just read this, briefly comment, go pretty quickly, and then offer two reflections or two ideas at the end. All right? 
Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice three images that David uses for God in this opening remark. Light, it's actually the same word that the writer of Genesis uses when he has God saying, let there be light, and there was light. That's the same word David uses here. Lord, you are my light. Secondly, he says, you are my salvation, my rescue, my deliverance. And thirdly, you are my stronghold, my, my sure defense. Um, sometimes it's translated my fortress, my place of safety is what he's saying about God. And then notice that all three of these images of God lead David to a single clear response, which he actually repeats. There is no fear. Because this is how I see God, there is no fear. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? There actually, David is using two different words for fear there. The first time he says fear, it's just fear as you would expect it. And the second time he uses the word which translated, whom shall I be afraid? It's a different word for fear, and it's really unique. It's this word that is like a dread of what is to come, but I can't see it. So there's the basic fear of the stuff that I can see in front of me, and then there's that, and, and that, I'm not really, I don't live like that. I don't walk around afraid of what I see, but I do resonate with the second kind of fear because sometimes I struggle with that, with a dread of that bad news, a, a dread of what is out there, you know, that I don't know about yet. But, but David says, God is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, and as a result, I will not be afraid. Uh, verse, chap verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Here we just simply see David's specific circumstance, David's specific situation. He's the king of Israel. He literally fought giants. His enemies were real armies with swords and spears and chariots and those kinds of things. So he's battling against people who literally are trying to kill him. I'm imagining your adversity is different from his adversity. I know his adversity is definitely different from my adversity. But the kind of adversity that uh, David faces can be addressed in this, the kind of adversity that I face can be addressed essentially the same way David faces his adversity, and that is this, that I will not fear. I will be confident. That, that still resonates, even though our specific struggles are different. The response to our struggle can be the same. Okay. Verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. This is very challenging to me because more than anything, David wants a relational closeness to God. More than anything. Like, if you could have one thing, David, what would you have? If you have one wish, David, what would you have? And it's so challenging to me that of all the things this up-and-coming king wants, I want a close relationship with God. It's a powerful statement. What is fueling this level of passion in David for God? It's, it's what he believes is true about God. It's his theology. It's what he is convinced about God that is fueling this passion. Look at two things that David expects from God. Verse 5, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. 
It's sometimes translated tabernacle. It's like this mobile church that was where David worshipped before his son built the, the permanent temple. He has set me high upon a rock. So one of the things that David is convinced is that in God's presence, he'll be protected. He's convinced of that. He expects that. One of the consequences of being near to God is protection from God. And then in verse 6, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. In other words, David is convinced that he's going to win. He's going to experience victory over his adversity. This will not defeat him finally. He's going he's gonna to probably experience some setbacks. He's going to lose some battles. But in the end, his head will be higher. He believes that no matter how rough the adversity, God will defend him, and he's going to end up on top. Now, a shift happens at this point in the psalm. We go from verses 1 through 6. It's just a testimony. Basically, David's saying, this is what I believe. This is what I expect. And then from 7 to 12, he shifts and he begins to speak directly to God. And now we have this testimony turning into a prayer. And it's a little surprising. And here's why. Because following this great statement of confidence comes this desperate prayer for deliverance. It's a little surprising. And here's what I hope that you will see. There's a sense of vulnerability here. There's a deep longing to experience the truth that David believes in his head and is proclaimed with his mouth. And now he's saying, God, can I please experience this in my life now? I believe this. What I need is to actually be able to say on a personal level, I've experienced this to be true. So you hear this real tension here in the prayer that comes. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call. Now he's talking directly to God. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me. Do not forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. And then after this desperate prayer, after this vulnerable and honest prayer, David remains confident. And I think that's important to see. A statement of confidence, a desperate, vulnerable, slightly shaky prayer leading him back to a place of confidence. This is what he says in 13. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, David is convinced that God is good, that he's going to experience God's goodness even on earth. Even on earth. That's what it means in the land of the living. He's confident of this. It's not over. I don't know what he's looking at outside his window. I don't know what, what uh, adversity is facing him as he writes this. But he's confident that this isn't the end. And he's going to experience the goodness of God. And then finally, at the very end of the psalm, David admonishes himself. He talks to himself. How cool is it that we get to hear King David talk to King David? But in, in talking to himself as the prophet and the king, he's also speaking to the people of God, and that includes us. So we can take this as not only an admonition from David to David, but a challenge from David to us. And it's a very challenging 
powerful challenge, and it's worth memorizing. I hope that you'll write it down and that you'll memorize it. This is how his song ends. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. David says essentially three very basic things. Wait, be strong, take heart. Sometimes it says take courage. The word literally means take your heart, put courage in it. (laughs) Take your heart and stick a bunch of courage in there. And then like a good mom or dad, he repeats himself, wait, (laughs) wait. So let me offer two challenges For those of us who are living on the shadow side of faith, those of us who are struggling, those of us who are hurting, those of us who are living in shadows of grief or disappointment or failure, David's prayer is so challenging to me for several reasons, and I want to point out two and invite you to open your heart up to be challenged by this testimony as well. The first challenge from Psalm 27 is this, face, oops, let's get there, be strong, there's the line, come on, there we go, face adversity. First challenge, face adversity, even disappointment, with devotion, with devotion. In this prayer, David demonstrates this real resolve in his commitment to God, even in troubled times. This challenges me. This also instructs me because it helps me know that devotion to Jesus in times of trouble is possible. It's possible. I don't have to get washed out. Just because life is getting washed out. I don't have to fail just because failure is confronting me. Okay? I don't have to be bound to defeat because just because everywhere I look, people are being defeated. Do you see that? I'm not a I'm not a pawn here. I'm not like just a uh, something that's just gonna get washed away with the re- no. Devotion to Jesus is possible even in the face of adversity. That's what he's telling me here. And facing adversity with devotion means that I might crawl across the finish line with a bloody body and a disturbed, troubled mind, but with a whole heart. With a whole heart. Victory for me is persevering in the faith. That's victory. Not professional success. Not attaining some kind of wealth. Not all kinds of relational or social accomplishments. It's preserving to the end. It's crossing the finish line with my life, at the end of my life, with my heart that is genuinely, authentically, honestly, wholly devoted to Jesus. There's the win. That's the victory for me. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you just a really personal story, and, and I hope that ultimately it's, it's just helpful. I remember getting a call from my friend Steve Scott, um, who is also the, the overseer of our network of churches in this area, is the district superintendent of this Sacramento area of the Nazarene Church. I got a call from Steve Scott just hours after a room full of doctors told my wife and I that our son, who was then four years old, had leukemia, had cancer in the blood. And he called me. And I don't remember anything about the conversation until the very end when he asked me, how can I pray for you? And I said, please pray for my soul. And the next day, he came down to the hospital, and he sat with me in this motorhome that Rob and Bethany Erickson made available for us while we stayed for several weeks down at the hospital. And we were sitting together in the motorhome, 
And he said this to me. He said, what did you mean when you said, pray for my soul? And just his question wrecked me. And I just wept. And I, after a couple minutes, I finally gathered myself together enough to just whisper to him, this could undo me. And, and I think my concern, now as I look back, I mean, eight years later, and I look back to this, this, these days when like every single fiber of my person was frayed and nothing seemed normal anymore, nothing. Not a single thing seemed normal or the way it was. Everything seemed to be different and changed now and unstable. I realized that my request for Steve's prayers was not based on a concern. Please listen not based on a concern that I would reject God out of anger, not based on a concern that I would like consciously deny the existence of God and walk away. No, my fear was that I would simply lose grasp of him. That I would sink into some darkness that was somehow beyond him. And that I just literally wouldn't have the capacity to be in relationship with him anymore. So I just said, pray for my soul. And what I was asking for was a prayer that my devotion to Jesus would survive. I couldn't have said that eight years ago, but now I can look back on that and I can say that's what that was about. It was a plea to a brother and a spiritual father to advocate on my behalf so that my devotion to Jesus wouldn't die. And why am I telling you this? That's really important. I'm telling you this because I am convinced and I think King David is convinced that this is the battle. Life is a war for your heart. Okay. It's a war for your heart. Why did this happen? That's a fair question. I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me. Of course it doesn't make any sense to you, but be careful. Be careful. Because the answer to the why question is beyond you. It is beyond you. It is too wonderful for you to comprehend. So don't fall into the trap of needing to understand this. You need to lay that down. You need to surrender that. It is a distraction. It is causing you to focus on making it make sense in your mind. It's not about your mind. It's about your heart. The battle is for your heart. When you face adversity, pray for grace to do so with a devoted heart. You don't have to understand it. You're not going to understand it. You need to rally all forces to surround you so that your heart stays devoted to Jesus. So when you, had fa when you face adversity, pray for grace to do so with a devoted heart. Face adversity with devotion. And then a second challenge from this psalm. When you feel like running, wait. David's prayer is full of images of stability and security. He uses words like salvation and stronghold and safe in his dwelling and shelter and rock and goodness. I mean, the whole song is full of all these images of stability. The ancient church refers to David's psalm, Psalm 27, as David's prayer of devotion. 
But I read this and I see that, but I also see in David's prayer a temptation to fear. And I also see in David's prayer a plea to not be abandoned. And so I know that David's struggle is real. But I also hear him overcoming the struggle. He may feel like running away, but instead he turns to God and, and he waits. It's so fascinating. It's like this battle is raging and he says, my heart says, seek your face. Do you hear that? My heart says, seek your face. Okay, my, your face, O oh Lord, I will seek. There's this battle raging. His mind's going like this, right? He's tying up his tennis shoes, but his heart's like, go to God, go to God, right? David's reminding himself that in the tension of the shadows, to remember the truth and then to act on the truth, God is his security. God is his stronghold. God is the safe place. So rather than run away and panic, rather than fret and wring his hands and worry, rather than busy himself with all kinds of frivolous consumption, he waits. He waits. He waits for the Lord. I think waiting must be one of the most counterintuitive responses to feeling threatened. I mean, when I feel threatened, are you kidding me? Be strong. Come on. Take courage. I'm right here. And wait? Don't you mean run? <laughs> right? Take courage and fight? Take courage and wait? What? Right. I'll tell you one more story. This is uh, recently Isaiah and I, along with nine other men who have mentored him this last year. We all went to the mountains for this culminating event uh, around a rite of passage for his 13th birthday that we created. There's lots of exploring, and there's lots of eating, and there was a time when Isaiah was affirmed by a bunch of good men, and then there was a time when we challenged him to embrace some new roles and some new responsibilities and establish some new habits and commitments. And then there was also an overnight solo. Um, and during the day, we searched out for a spot, away from our base camp for Isaiah to spend a night alone in the woods. Now, we talked about this beforehand, um, and I had to do some serious convincing of my wife to allow this to happen, and we, we readdressed it several times. I want you to know, I wasn't like, and now, <laughs> you will spend the night. No, uh, we talked about it, um, and even up to the last couple days, and even that day, I said, how do you feel about this? You still, absolutely, and it was, I mean, he never, he never hesitated. Because for Isaiah, the greater the risk, the greater the fun. So it was like, do it. Like, plant a bear right here next to me. Let's have fun with it. <laughs> so I, I wasn't surprised that he was okay with it. What I was surprised with was that at the last minute, I was not okay with it. I was not okay with it. I, we, uh, we, I walked out there. First of all, when we walked out there at night, I couldn't find it. Um, and then uh, I had to go back, get some help from another brother-in-law, and we found it. And uh, we put him, you pray for him, and uh, we put him in, you know, and I gave him my Bible and, and said goodnight, and it's, it's dark, and it took everything I had to walk away from that tent. It was so surprising to me. I'm like, what are you thinking? You're leaving your kid in the woods in the dark all night? You're, whose idea was this? This is, what you... Too many movies or something. What is going on? I mean, it's all I could do to hike back. I didn't say anything to my brother-in-law because I was afraid I was going to say something really wimpy and stupid. I was like, I'm so worried. 
soon as I even feel a hint of threat, as soon as I even feel a hint of uncertainty, my instinct is to take control, right? My instinct is to gather up my little chicks and, and run out with them and protect them. I want to do something. It actually feels scary to wait for God to do something. I'm actually scared of that sometimes. In the light, when there's no threat, there's no adversity, I can wait, I can trust, I can be. I'm actually kind of good at it. But when the night comes and the fog rolls in and the shadow creeps over and adversity is there, I just feel like grabbing all those I love and running, getting the heck out of there. Some of us have been in that dark night for a long time. Some of us are miles into the dark and into the shadows. Some of us have been there for so long and we are so sick of living on the shadow side of our faith that, you know what, we'll run in any direction. We'll go in any direction if it means we can get out of this place because this place is hard and dark and uncertain and scary and painful and disappointing and a whole host of other things. The challenge is to resist that panicky feeling of desperation if you're living on the shadow side. Friends, if you're living on the shadow side, you must let the testimony of the holy tradition of the people of God be your guide. It is the only faithful guide. You must let this be your guide. Wait. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. The sun is going to rise again. Your deliverer is near. So wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Sustain us, Jesus. Sustain us. Strengthen us especially those who are wrecked with grief today, those who are scared because the finances are not there, those who are facing consistent disappointment in relationships and communication is not working out. Sustain us. Give us the fortitude so that we don't bail out, escape no matter what the cost. Give us grace to be with you in the dark, believing, trusting, not understanding, but placing our heart out before you and saying, this is all yours. I am all yours, and I am waiting for you. And so, Jesus, would you deliver those who need deliverance today? I pray for grace, God. May we be faithful followers of Jesus I'm going to ask Melissa to play or Stephanie to come up and play just for a minute. And um, as we take a, a time after our sermon, like we always do, and, and just greet one another, I'm going to be up here, ask a couple other people to be up here in front. And if you just have something that you're, it would help you to just confess or acknowledge and say, this is where I'm at, this is my darkness, I'd like to invite you to pray with me, then, then it'd be a privilege to do that with you. Uh, you. You don't need to do this alone. All right, and then